Welcome to the A Different Kind of Psychiatry podcast brought to you by the ACO. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Each month, we feature a case presentation, interview, or discussion by one or more of our doctors who practice a different kind of psychiatry. We are interested in your questions and comments, and I would love to hear your feedback. Send an email to aco at orgonomy.org. The best way to help the American College of Ergonomy spread its knowledge is by letting others know about us. If you enjoy the podcast, we'd appreciate you leaving a rating and review. You can leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, Amazon's Audible, and Spotify. If you're interested in attending one of our webinar presentations, you can meet the doctors and join in on the discussion afterwards. If you're interested in training with the ACO, you can learn more about the medical organ therapy and social ergonomy training programs. You can connect with us and learn more at ergonomy.org or a different kind of psychiatry.com. This episode features the audio from one of our webinar presentations. Dr. Salvatore Iacobello tells me about his adolescent patient, JD, who despite being on multiple medicines, was suffering from tics, he was angry, out of control, and struggling with peers in school and his parents at home. Listen in to hear Dr. Iacobello work with JD, his parents, and his school to help calm the chaos, relieve his symptoms, and give JD a place to express himself and gain perspective. I'm happy to introduce our speaker today, Dr. Salvatore Iacobello. His presentation is entitled, Therapy Changes the Chaotic Life of a Troubled Teenager. Dr. Iacobello is a board-certified psychiatrist and a clinical associate with the American College of Ergonomy. Welcome, Dr. Iacobello. Thank you, Dr. Barrett. I'm happy to be here. So, Dr. Iacobello, maybe we can start just by uh, you telling the audience the chaotic life of a troubled teenager. How did you decide to present this patient? Well, uh, I think the audience would be interested to learn about uh, an out-of-control adolescent who responds well to medical organ therapy while he had failed treatments before. Uh, this is a, an adolescent who had been in treatment since the age of five, and he was not improving. So who was this patient, and how did he come to you? Well, the, this patient, J.D., he was uh, 14 years old when he, he came uh, to see me. Uh, the way he became a patient is in itself a, a story because his parents, who were those who, who got in touch with me, were mostly looking for a psychiatrist who could prescribe medications to him. The parents didn't know that uh, I don't uh, treat my patient with just medications, but I treat the patient mostly with therapy, and then I use medications if they are needed. So, but the parents had been told by the prior uh, prescriber that she didn't know what to do any longer. She felt that uh, we'd be good to find uh, somebody who had more experience and they, who could treat uh, children and adolescents. So. Uh, they called me, and then uh, 
we had the first contact and I had to explain them that I see patients mostly for therapy and only on that case, I prescribe medications. Now, there was the complication that the boy at that time, he was seeing another therapist. So we had to look into all that to see if a, a transition could, could happen. So after a few sessions where I clarified all the problems, the parents actually decided that uh, they wanted to come to see me. Dr. Yacobello, yeah. <clears throat> maybe you could say just about that first phone call with the mother or father. What, what were they concerned about? What was going on with JD? Well, they, they were concerned that JD was not on the right medications. Uh, he, was doing, he was doing worse. His anger was becoming more of a problem. Uh, he had been in the hospital once already. Maybe it was like six months earlier he had been in the hospital uh, for about two weeks. And also they, they had a lot of questions about the diagnosis. Did, did they have the right diagnosis? Uh, what could be done to help him? Was he taking the right medications? So, Dr. Iacobello, what was yeah. it that was causing problems? What, was, was he depressed, anxious, fighting, damaging property? I'm curious. Uh, the main, the main problem was he was not able to get along well with peers at school. Uh. He would get easily frustrated and then he would react with the anger, making statements to peers that were quite offensive. Uh, I have read some of them, I don't want to repeat them. And this was happening more than one occasion. Mm. So during these conflicts, the school teacher, they needed to take him out of the classroom. So at that point, he uh, was not going to be able to be any longer in regular education in a regular class. In addition to that, this was a boy who also had multiple tics. He was having tics of his neck, his jaw, his shoulders, and he, they have been present for quite a few years. So now that that's actually was a source of his peers making fun of him, and that's then we created those conflicts. He was having these involuntary um, movements in, in his face and jaw that yeah. was, he was being yeah, teased about. He, he had been diagnosed with Tourette's disorder at a certain point. He had a long history of psychiatric treatment going back to the age of five, as I already said. At that time, the main problem that emerged was that he couldn't focus, he couldn't pay attention, he was not doing his work. So he was started on medications for attention deficit. They seemed to have helped, but eventually 
he developed all these things. Now, if he was predisposed or it was just the medications that they caused them, that's not clear yet to me. Uh, so at that point, he stopped the, the attention deficit medications and he was given other medications. Dr. Iacobello, if, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're describing, it sounds like a boy from age five to 14 who's seeing different doctors, different nurse practitioners and therapists, and they're focusing on individual symptoms, whether it's hyperactivity, whether it's anger, whether it's inattention, and they're trying to find you know, medicines that can quell symptoms. And, and it sounds like with all this confusion about the diagnosis, they don't really have a sense of who this boy is. I think that that's what was happening. And when I met with the parents, the first few sessions, and I was meeting, parents are divorced, so I was meeting uh, with each parent individually. It was clear to me that uh, there was a high level of anxiety and feeling overwhelmed on the part of the mother. The mother actually was the one who probably out of her anxiety, she couldn't see her son for who he was. So for me, it was very difficult to obtain an history and understand the problem because she was giving me diagnosis. She was asking me if he had this diagnosis or he had the other diagnosis, if this medicine was right or wrong. And that's what, was creating more difficulties. So that was the, the first thing I felt I had to do if I could help this boy was to actually engage with the mother and be able to decrease her anxiety and reassure her. And I have had many sessions just with the mother and we still keep having them whenever it's needed. I think that has been very beneficial. How, how did she respond? This reminds me of many phone calls I've had with parents um, looking to, to start treatment for their, chi their child or adolescent, where they call and like you said, they'll say, well, he has ADHD and depression. I think some social anxiety and they've been on this medicine, kind of like as if you're talking to colleagues, you know, about um, treatment of patients. And you, you have to ask them, you know, patiently just, you know, let's step, take a step back and what's actually going on? How did she respond to that for you to try to actually find out what is the problem? Who is this boy? Well, she was able to engage with me because it was clear the boy was not doing any better. He was very unhappy. In fact, when he, he was hospitalized, it was during an argument with his mother. Hmm. And he was angry, he was very upset. And then from there, he went into saying that he, he wished he were dead or he, that he wanted to kill himself. So then that was what led to the hospitalization. And that's, I think, what must have been six months before he started to see me. And the, the mother, I think, she was very overwhelmed. She was looking for help. She sounded desperate. She was ready. She was ready to 
to start to look at, at a different way of trying to, to understand their son and see who he, he was. What, one, thing, one thing that was very helpful, I think, was the fact that I moved from an approach of blaming the son that there is something wrong with him, he's the bad one, to helping them to look at, at who he was and at his strengths. Now, this is a boy who is very smart, very articulate. He has a great language. I don't know if since when he has seen me, he has much improved, but he, he can, uh, I think he, he reads, he reads a lot. He can have uh, any conversation with me to the point that now he, sometimes he relates to me like he's talking to a friend. He brings up uh, something that uh, he read or something that he thinks. Dr. Iacobello, maybe just we can back up a little bit. You mentioned the parents were divorced and at first you were connecting with mother and her anxiety. And what was it like connecting with the father? Well, connecting with the father was very difficult. That's, uh, I want to say, uh, I was able to connect with the father superficially, uh, actually just to the point that of having him not to interfere with the treatment. Mm. Uh, the father is not American. Uh, he's from New Zealand. Uh, now, he has very unusual or at times bizarre ideas of what his son should be like or what he should do. The, the father didn't want his son to be on all this medicine. Actually, that was something good that uh, uh, I could use in the treatment of his son. So that the father thought that his son just needed attention deficit medicines and that's all, and he would be fine. And then he, he was very angry. He was blaming the mother for uh, wanting to take the son away from him. There have been a lot of uh, uh, custody conflict in the background. Uh, so all this was confusing the picture. I worked with the father, but then what happened was uh, the boy had this switch of feelings. While when he, he came to see me, he was closer to his father and we blame his mother for not knowing how to deal with him and how to deal with his anger. Then he switched to the point that he didn't want to see his father. He doesn't want to talk to him. And that's made the father very upset. At that point, the, the father's main concern was to be able to have his son to come to visit him or talk to him. Dr. Iacobella, what, what was that first appointment like with JD after you connected enough with mother and father to, to get him into the office with you to start treatment? Well, he came into the office uh, with no problem, see, but he, he didn't look happy. He, he was irritated. He sat on the couch uh, looking or standing in front of him uh, giving short answers at first, 
And then he started to, to tell me about how the, there was nothing wrong with him. The problems were with his mother. She didn't know how to deal with him. And while he was talking, I, I could see that he was very tense. Uh, he had no expression on his face. And then he would have these ticks that uh, would become more evident uh, when he was more excited. So he would move it. He would have a tick on his head, on his neck, on the shoulder. And one of the things he told me, I remember, was I, I, I'm not really depressed. I, I never wanted to kill myself. I was just overwhelmed. I didn't know what to say. I said that. And they sent me to the, to the hospital. So he, he was angry. And he, 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 there was also fear with him especially in his eyes. So Wait, you're, you're saying there was tension in, in his face to, to keep him from show that that prevented him from showing fear or, or, or anger he, in his face. Yeah, he was very tight. And this is still happens today. I'm not, I don't want to say that this is gone. But uh, now, even to him, it's becoming more, it's becoming evident that that's his defense. Mm how he is uh, avoiding to connect with other people. So, so that I think that I felt that there was fear behind this and there was a, a lot of misery. So at that point, I knew that in some way I had to help him to connect with these feelings and uh, at the same time to, to be able to express them and, and tolerate them. How did you do that? Well, the main tool was actually just talking to him and allow him to say whatever was in his mind and uh, not being critical of him and the engaging with him on whatever he was bringing. So at that time, the main issues were connected to the conflicts with his mother, and I gave him permission to tell me how angry he was uh, about his mother. And with the, after three, four sessions, I was able to, to start to engage him in some biophysical work, mostly working on his eyes, on his face, having him uh, to breathe and look around, uh, around the room. So that was... Uh, how, did you decide, how did you decide to have him look around the room? What, what was it about him that... that well, his uh, eyes were very tight and, uh, and fixed. And he, he would not look around. Or his eyes were shifty. If we look around, he would look sideways. And he would not make an eye contact. I felt that with his eyes were defending him from uh, strong emotions. Mm. Now, to have an idea uh, of what his eyes looked like, I don't know if he, you recall, I'm sure you have seen uh, 
autistic children who you can see they have their they gaze uh, being uh, rigid and they don't look at people. So that's what it was like. In fact, one of the diagnoses they had eventually considered for him was that he could have a form of, of autism. Mm. So when, when I started to mobilize his eyes and his face, he would, uh, he would start to cry. He broke, he broke down in crying in my office just the, the first time after a few sessions. Wow. Now, that, that's, that's what happened. And that still happens today. So by, he feels better afterwards. At the same time, he avoids this. Dr. Jacobella, was it that simple that you, you just had him look around and he cried? Did, 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 did that, he allow that to come forward easily? What was that like? Well, I think the main difficulty was to engage him and to have him participate. Mm -hmm. But once he would do that, then feelings will start to, to come up. So oh. after the first time he went home, he told his mother he didn't know what had happened to him and what was that. But he had felt better. And the mother reported that he was calmer for the following day or so. And now, as I said, he's a very smart boy. So he started to ask me, what is that about? <laughs> Why do you do that? What does that do? But was he surprised that he had these feelings in well, him? He was surprised. Yeah, he, he, did, he didn't expect that. Hmm. At the same time, now it's clear he doesn't want to, to feel the misery. He doesn't want to cry. So he rather stays stiff. And the way it is now, he rather talks to me about anything rather than do some bio, biophysical work. So I have to in some way to doze or calibrate how much I let him uh, do or talking. And uh, I enjoy talking with him because he can bring up any kind of issue. Uh, he can be humorous with me, but at school with his peers, he cannot, he cannot approach any of his peers. And, and have a, a regular conversation with him. So he has no one else but you to just have a conversation, say how he feels, if he's pissed off, if he's excited about something, nobody who can just hear him out. Yeah, at this time, yes. But he also talks to his mother now. And the, his mother uh, actually appreciates that. Hmm. And... That's what we have been working uh, with the mother to, to be able to accept him. There are are you saying? Examples. Are you saying in the course of therapy and, and being able to speak to you and not be criticized and just allow him to say what he needs to say, that has help, helped him speak up with his mom also? Yeah. Although he he had he was. He, he had a connection with his mother before, mm -hmm. but uh, there was a lot of conflict. 
And he, he would get angry, yell, and fight, and we go to his room, all upset. Now this uh, is not happening because uh, I think uh, I have been able to give him a perspective to understand that although he feels in a certain way and he, he may be right in many things, that doesn't mean that he, he has to push these things uh, toward other people right? and get engaged in arguments. Dr. Iacobella, if I'm hearing what you're saying, and I think this is worth underscoring, is that especially today, you can have feelings about something and an impulse that may be rational, but sometimes you have to keep it to yourself to, to deal with something rationally, to, to get through it, to uh, handle an environment that you're in. Is that what you're saying? Right. That's, that's what uh, I'm saying. He didn't know. He didn't know how to do that because in some way he is, the other aspect of him is he's very opinionated. He believes he's right. All the other people don't count for him or their opinion doesn't matter. And he, not only he thinks about that, but he, he didn't have any restraint or inhibition to say what he was thinking. And some major occasions, he, he had made some very ugly remarks towards some girls uh, at school. And that's, mm -hmm. that's really uh, caused a, a lot of upheaval. Dr. Jacobella, what you're saying reminds me of a patient I have who has this wonderful quality of this like laser vision who can focus on something and, and see it clearly. And he knows, you know, what's right or what to do or, and can't stand the fact that other people can't see it that way. And however right he may be, that can cause him trouble to lose perspective of, of what everybody else is, how they're seeing it. That's right. The, the, the lack of perspective and also the lack of integration in what his perceptions are. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things that I've been working with Mala to help her to, to try to understand that. Did she need help tolerating his strong feelings? I think she needed. Yeah, yes, she, she needed that. And very much she needed to be reassured. And I felt like the mother needed to be held in some way to be to feel comfortable to know that I was going to do what was needed to help him, and that's included the medications too, because that was a, a major concern over here. Well, the interesting thing has been just I want to say this since when I have seen him. I had not had to prescribe any new medication to him. And actually now he's not taking any medications. So I never really had to make any pharmacological decisions. It's interesting because in the community, you know, it sounds like you're saying the nurse practitioner uh, referred this patient to you because you know, you're the one with more knowledge about psychopharmacology. And in the end, you understood you, you got this boy and, and you didn't have to use the medicine. In fact, it may have been 
the rational, the wise thing to do to not put more things on top of every, you know the, the picture. Yeah, right. That's exactly mm. what happened. I think that that's part of the picture. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's wonderful. So they didn't know what they were they're getting themselves into, but it was a, a pleasant surprise. Yeah, it was a pleasant surprise. And now the mother is very happy for working with me. And the mother has always the tendency to come to me when uh, there is something wrong, something she thinks is wrong with him. And she asks me, what should we do to have JD stop doing this? Or uh, should we give him some, uh, some medication at this time? But uh, I'm all, I've been always able to engage her. One major, one major situation was the mother wanted me to, to change what JD was thinking. Because, well, JD at a certain point got into uh, more political thinking. And uh, I probably spends a lot of time on the internet side. So he, he was espousing all these. Uh, uh, right-wing opinions and ideologies and not only that but then he, he will argue with his mother or other people he will be pretty loud about that and that's was creating problems in the family the younger brother who is two years younger than him was being affected by that so the mother came to me not asking what she could do, but in some way she was concerned that he, he was thinking these things. What could be done to, to change his thinking? Mm -hmm. So uh, certainly I, I didn't go into that, but at the same time, uh, I helped them to see what, what was happening in a large... How did you help her? I'm curious. Well, I, I say that I helped her to see what was happening to JD in a developmental level. What was that doing for him? He needed to uh, identify with somebody, to develop a personality, a, a strong personality, as opposed to the other feelings he was dealing with, or weakness, or, or being competent, or being feminine. So. That's what was happening at that time. Hmm. So I didn't explain to her all that, but I said I can work with him in therapy about all these ideas he has. He's going through a phase at this time. As for now, then with JD, I worked letting him understand that he could have his opinion, but he didn't need to get this on people's face. If they didn't like to, to hear them, he could better keep to himself. And then I will let him know, you can talk about all these things here with me as much as you want. So I, I acquired quite some knowledge there about all these kind of <laughs> beliefs that go around. Yeah. It was just interesting too to me of, you know, we talk about, um, a patient's nature, a person's nature, and how that um, 
is something you're born with that, you know, you can have a character that develops and a personality that, that develops on top of it. But my observation is that there are people who are naturally more liberal and naturally more conservative. And, and that's just part of someone's nature. And um, that doesn't get into, you know, how you handle it. If, if, if he's causing havoc and, and espousing right, his right. and political, but, but just, you know, for, for people to know that, that there is a, a natural course of things of how people develop and that, that some are this way and some are that way, you know, is worth yeah, it. Right. That, that to me was also a, a work of decreasing the, the anxiety because the mother was afraid he was going to turn into some uh, white uh, supremacist, uh, terrorist kind of guy. I see. And that's... A, is not my concern at all because uh, I can see the, the good features of him. So he, I think this now has not been a has not been a problem at least with the mother. So she was losing perspective, and you need to help her. Yeah, I need to I need to help her to see what, what was happening, how it, to be able to see that he had to go through this phase. To eventually get to to a healthier place where he, he can be more in touch with his feelings. Could could you tell us more about that? What were the feelings that he was grappling with that he had to project this strong, you know, persona? Well, there, there, there is a deep misery. I mean, this boy deep down he needs needs contact. He has a lot of suffering. There is, there is a lot of crying. And uh, I want to tell you that there was one session and this uh, I was uh, really taken aback. He came. Now he, he walks into the office by himself. The mother just drops him outside. So he came, he goes to the couch and he starts to cry and cry. And the all the session was his kind. Mm. And the, I just, I was there, I was present, I listened to him. I would encourage him to let the feeling out. And at the end, he was done, time to go. And that's, that was it. He was able to to get up and he, he went back home and I think he did much better for the following week or so. Dr. Yacobel, that that stands out, you know, two things stand out to me. One is that he developed a trust with you that it sounds like you didn't even have to talk about anything. It just, he knew this was a place where he could just express himself. And number two was that he didn't need you to even help him. He was aware of what he needed and he did what he had to do and he was done. Yeah. Yeah. That that's, that that's what happened. And that's self-regulation. In some way. Yes. He, he, he knew what he needed at that time. Wow. And Dr. Yacobel, there's a question and I'm curious too. Did his tics, um, uh, changed? What what happened to them? Are, are you still his, dealing with his that? ticks? Uh, we early on we saw that uh, the ticks were connected to his emotions and what he, he was feeling when he was under pressure. He will have more ticks, but then 
through the time there's been such a significant improvement in text that I sometimes they are unnoticeable throughout all the session. And mother says that the texts are almost gone. What's Although, your sense? You said there's a connection between his texts and his feelings and emotions. What's your I sense? I think I, I have seen that the texts are connected to crime. Oh. And is the, that's the way his organism is fighting against the crime. Actually, lately I saw how Actually, there is a deeper take that involves his diaphragm. I, I saw him the, the last time he, he was on the couch. I saw that the diaphragm was going, was going off. Could you just describe that for the audience who maybe aren't familiar with what that might look like? It would be an involuntary movement like this, and I could see that it would originate from the level of the diaphragm. And that was while I was aiming him to, uh, to brief and express some feelings. So in his case, I think I'm pretty confident to say that uh, the takes where he's crying. Hmm. What you're describing also is, is just uh, from our knowledge of, of the depth of feeling and, and layering that that he had feelings, I think, of sadness that were superficial and came right out within a few sessions. And then he also has a much deeper level of crying and, yeah. and all kinds of other feelings in between of fear and, and anger. Is that right? Yeah, I think that there are different layers. I think that there is a deeper misery that he has not been uh, reached yet. Mm. Now, on the other side, he's really connecting with uh, his... Uh, the way he relates to other, he's connecting with his anger. There was a session, another session where I was particularly surprised where we started looking at how he's doing at school and he brings up, up his anger towards everybody. And then the next step is he can connect the anger to his fear. Hmm. And now he's afraid of people. And then he, he himself says, well, I think it's, uh, I'm paranoid. So he was able to, to really. So he was angry. You're yeah. making me scared. Right. And then he, he brings up, well, man, maybe I'm paranoid. This, this is what it is, I'm paranoid. Hmm. People. So he, I, I, I think that that's was a, a, an important moment. Yeah, uh, to to be able to to connect with that, and the truth is, uh, from the beginning, I felt that he, he was paranoid. It, that that's worth mentioning, you know that that um, you can hear of paranoia when you think of the extreme of someone, you know, worried about the government tapping their phones or or do, um, you know some kind of uh, abduction, and then you can think of just someone who can't trust somebody or has feelings that they um, associate from somebody else, some external force, another person. And that's what it sounds like you're saying. He had this fear that he was projecting that somebody else was causing him to feel afraid rather than this was just his own. Right. He, he connected, I think, he, that was his fear, but fear is fear coming from other people who are his, uh, 
his enemy, so adversary, and so he mm. had to fight. Wow. And what was that like for him to, to make that uh, connection? I think, I think he was, he was, he was uh, impressed by that, although I didn't want to put much stress on that. I think the way we, we terminated the session was by showing him how the expression he assumes at school, that is the one not no, looking at the, anybody, keeping a flat face and uh, not showing any feelings, how that's his way of defending himself from all the feelings he's having. Yeah. So that, that's where we left the session at that time. So he, he, now he has perspective on his fear, but now he still has to face it. Yes, he still has to face it. And it comes at, at different levels. And the, well, one thing I didn't mention yet, that uh, he, he has gotten very much into wrestling. And that's, uh, I felt that that would be a very good opportunity, a very good outlet for his uh, aggression. And I think that's uh, has helped him very much. And, you know, sometimes he has brought up the issue that his anxiety and his fear gets on the way of him being able to, to have a good wrestling match and win. So again, you're saying that he has this aggressive side to him and some of that can be a reaction to other feelings like fear, but he also has a natural aggression? Yeah, I, th I think he has, a, he, yes, he has a, a natural aggression that needs to have an outlet. Mm -hmm. Dr. Yacobel, a question from the audience. Was he aware of how he looked, how he didn't show, how he was tense? Did you make him aware of that? What, what was that process like and, and just connecting him with his expression? Well, I, I think that's, that's a work in progress. We are working on that uh, is, is still a, uh, nowadays. So uh, I tell him, I, I've been telling him how, what he's doing with his eyes, where his eyes are, how he avoids uh, looking at people, his expression. Actually, I ask him to do it for me, and show it, and exaggerate. Sometimes I, I imitate him. So, so what, would you, what would you have him do? I, to, to actually show me what he does at school mm -hmm. and assume that I expression in front of me while he looks at me. And the last time I was, I was showing him what he looks like. And I asked him, what does it feel like? What kind of feelings are, are there? And, you know, I have him also look, look at me and look around. Or now one thing he tells me, and this is something difficult to, to understand, but this may be a sign of the deeper processes that are going on with him. He tells me he can look at me and make eye contact with me. He says, because I am a real person, a person who has a soul. 
real person, but the other students at school and the other people, he cannot look at them because they are not real. They are robots. They don't have a soul. He, can't, he cannot look at them. So I think this is some kind of misperception he's having, or, and that's, that's why I left it for now. Mm. But that's what, what he describes. You know, it sounds like you're describing maybe his perception of the fact that, um, and I'm tell me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're showing him who you are and that helped develop trust. And, and maybe he's picking up on how we all can have a facade and he picks up on the facade of other students. And if, if they don't show them, uh, if they don't show him their, their true colors in a way, then he, he gets afraid of them and feels they don't even have a soul, but it's, he's seeing their facade. Is, is that it? Yeah, that, that, that's possible. He's seeing something deeper, but at the same time, I think there is some distortion there. Yeah. Because he talks about the, uh, these other people not having a soul or being like a robot or being a shell or people. That's something that is difficult to understand at face value. Wow. And it also makes you wonder to what, what that's like to feel being around, you know, even if that's a misperception, if that's how he's perceiving those around him, what is that like to be in that environment? Right. right. So he feels like he's a, you know, a hostile foreign environment. Yeah. Wow. Were you able to help his parents? And I know we haven't talked about his father recently to help them see his distortions and his difficulty. The, the mother, I think she, she understands now that he, he needs help with being able to integrate his experiences and have a perspective. At the same time, she, she remains anxious when she sees him not doing well or having uh, some problems. With the father, I, I had not seen the father for some time because the last time I saw him, he mostly was interested in having the son talking to him and visiting with him. So in some way, he wanted to enroll me in this uh, pursuit, thing that uh, I didn't do. So although I had offered him that we could meet whenever he, he felt he needed that, he, he had concerns, but he made clear that his only interest was to be able to, to get his son back. Mm. On the other side, to his credit, the, the father in some way remains involved. There was a school meeting uh, to which the father participated. And he, according to the mother, he was, uh, he was attentive. So the father has not pulled out uh, completely, even if uh, still uh, JD doesn't want to talk to him, doesn't want to exchange messages, uh, just that doesn't want to uh, to be involved with him. If I'm hearing you, you're saying you didn't get caught in the trap of of being forced to to do you know the father's bidding, however um, much. Right, because of, that's, 
that's why they put me in the situation of having to be the one who tells JD what to do. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you, you, you had the impression very early on that that would only backfire if you were there to tell them what to do. Yeah, right, because I feel that the, I would be very easy for JD to, uh, to develop uh, more of a, a negative attitude toward me. And I don't want to exacerbate his defenses, but I want to work uh, around him and make him feel that uh, I'm on his side. Yeah. So whenever something happens, uh, I, I never tell him what to do or not to do, but I just uh, I help him to look at the situation and see what's going on. And then he, he can make his own decision. Again, you gave him perspective. Right, right. I think that's that's always been the most important thing here. Yeah, that, that sounds like the foundation of the therapy between you and him is, is you being able to provide him perspective and then also an outlet for his feelings. Yeah. So you mentioned how he sees you. You know, you have a soul, you're a real person, and then the, the, his peers in school are automatons or robots. What did he see in himself? Did he look in a mirror ever? Uh, well, we, we are not done it uh, in the office or having him to, to look at the mirror. Sometimes I, I talk to doing that. But I think he's aware that the, he may come across as awkward and strange and stiff in his movement, not coming. You know, he's, he's very much aware of that. And that's something I think that pains him uh, because he very much wants to be accepted, wants to be uh, recognized. And he, he knows that. And that's, I think, it's, it's something that he takes into value. There's a great question from the audience. Is his mother in therapy or, or you were working with her just in the, for the sake of helping JD? What happened with no, her? His mother is not in therapy. I just, uh, I just work with her uh, as part uh, of the treatment with JD. And we, from time to time, we have a session just with the mother. Uh, and that's, I think, is very helpful. I see. Because the mother can be clear of what's going on, or what I'm doing, what I'm thinking, or what's the situation. Dr. Iacobello, another question, which is also, I think, very important for an adolescent. Was his sexuality, did that ever come up in therapy? Well, yes, that's, it comes up in different forms. Now that there is so much, so I, I didn't have the opportunity to say something about, about this. When he came to me, he identified as being gay. And this uh, caused to him a lot of problems at school because he had announced this through the social media. And then this uh, led to... Uh, to him uh, identifying with that role and led to a lot of conflicts with his peers that 
they will make fun of him, and then uh, that's we trigger his anger. Mm. So then, uh, however, through the time he has been with me, all, all this has changed. And now he, he doesn't see himself as being gay any longer. Actually, he now has moved to, to the opposite uh, extreme where he says how he doesn't like uh, effeminate people or all these trans and these different uh, sexual lifestyles. He also, because the father actually originally had been supportive of his uh, sexual choices, so now he's also, that's another reason he's angry at his father because he felt his father had been pushing him toward being, uh, being gay. Oh. And they had encouraged him to assume uh, attitudes consistent with that identification. I see. So also beyond that, he has brought up issues that uh, now he is, it happens that he has become more Catholic through, since when I have known him, his grandmother is a, a religious person. So he has become more Catholic. He also he is well-read in religious uh, teachings. So this also on the other side has led him toward concerns and guilt feelings about masturbation and about what he should do. So, and they, he can bring up these things with me uh, whenever and uh, my role has been to give him the right perspective and clarify things. Yeah, for an adolescent to have someone they trust to talk about something is charged as sexuality. You know, I can imagine it's invaluable for him to have you. Yeah, I, I think so. Because he can talk to me. I, I think I, we have a unique understanding. I give it, uh, him the the ergonomic perspective or what this means. And I think that uh, can, be, can be very helpful, especially lifting the guilt feelings that uh, we're coming here with, with all the urges of fantasies. To have a functional understanding of sexuality rather than a moralistic understanding of sexuality, you know, can, can really help an adolescent. Yeah. I think so. Uh, Dr. Iacobello, I'm thinking just about this entire situation for your patient JD and thinking, you know, in some ways, this is similar to therapy from 50 years ago, but in some ways it's very different with how much you have to work with a mother and a father of the chaos that... Um, well, I did, excuse me, if I, yeah. I, I have not mentioned the school because you know, I also have been involved with the uh, with the school uh, regarding uh, placement choices, placement yeah. decisions. Yeah. yeah, you know, I, I just think of how at one point, whether rational or irrational, parents were on the same page, a school and parents were on the same page, and there was, you know, a patient in front of you and you were helping them deal with their, their situation and their feelings. And now, whether, again, whether rational or irrational, 
there's so many different directions and people are on different pages. There, there's so much more to deal with um, in therapy with an adolescent or a child. Um, you know, you called it the chaos of a troubled teenager. I think we're seeing that more and more, and it, it can be very challenging work. Yeah, I think just uh, getting to know uh, the case and the history of treatment, one can see how how much chaos there was, and they, that was the main function of therapy to try to to settle things down and bring clarity and understanding. Yeah, you know, when we're talking about this, I'm thinking if there's any children or adolescents I see without working with their parents in any um, significant way, and I can't think of a single single situation. Yeah. yeah Dr. That- Jacobel, this has been a wonderful discussion. Be- before we wrap up, I'm curious, what do you want to leave the audience with to, to um, understand this patient, your therapy with him? Well, uh, I think the, the most important message is how important it is to the importance of making contact with the patient, in this case, with the family. Meeting them where they are. Yeah, meeting them where they are, yes. Dr. Iacobello, thank you very much for this presentation. Welcome, Dr. Perry. And thank you to the audience for joining us. And a special thank you to the donors of the ACO who make our work possible. How do you feel after listening to JD's therapy with Dr. Iacobello? What do you think? What stood out to me was how Dr. Iacobello quickly recognized that telling JD what to do wasn't going to work. Instead of trying to convince him this way or that, as his parents had hoped for, he dealt with JD in the situation as it was, rather than how it could or should be. He recognized that JD needed perspective and wouldn't respond to pressure. By doing so, he gained his trust, which allowed them to build a solid and helpful doctor-patient relationship so JD could address his emotional difficulties. We are interested in your questions and comments, and I'd love to hear your feedback send an email to aco at orgonomy.org. You can leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, Amazon's Audible, and Spotify. The best way to help the ACO spread its knowledge is by letting others know about us. I hope you'll share this podcast with your friends and family and let them know about our work. You can connect with us at orgonomy.org or a different kind of psychiatry.com. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Thank you for listening to the A Different Kind of Psychiatry podcast with the ACO. Since 1968, the psychiatrists affiliated with the American College of Orgonomy have been helping patients discover greater satisfaction, health, and overall well-being in their lives. Whether patients suffer with mental illness, struggle with addiction, or feel unsatisfied with their work lives or relationships, medical orgone therapy as practiced by the physicians at the ACO offers a way forward often without the use of medication.